Welcome to episode 19 of Texting, the show where we talk about the thrills and spills of technology and tech startups, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. <laughs> okay. So, uh, all right, well, let's get started by first. I first, I want to hear about uh, the progress on um, Twitminer. <laughs> tweet. You sent me an email. Tweetminer, sorry. Tweetminer, tweet yeah. Miner. I mean, because you sent me an email like a day or two after our podcast, after you'd finished hooking up the PayPal API and you had your first customer almost immediately, right? Yeah, I got the first paying customer and, um, you know, it was it was a great feeling to get that first paying customer. Um, they signed what was up. it? How much was it for? $200. $200 for a year of the service? Yeah, basically, because they took the most, um, they took the highest plan and they signed up for a year up front to save, because I, I put in an offer um, to basically give them 12 months for, for the cost of 10 months if they purchased a year up front. So that was like found money, right? Right out of the gate. Like <laughs> right out of the gate, you're getting paid just for making that extra effort to get the payment system hooked in, right? Well, it was, I mean, it certainly, yeah, exactly. But, you know, su subsequently since then, I mean, it's not like uh, people have been signing up and paying money every day. It's just, it's almost like there was a bunch of people who had sort of decided they were going to pay because I had 400 people registered. And of those 400, okay. uh, coincidentally, well, you were saying that it's it's something like 1% of, of people are going to pay. And, you know, yeah, 1.6% was like really in the high side, I think, of yeah. the services that I think I think it's about 1.6% because like six people are paying now. So that's your, that's your radical transparency, right? <laughs> That, isn't that what your, your your plan was to be radically transparent, kind of in the vein oh, of oh uh, yeah, well yeah, I mean, balsamic. Yeah, radically transparent um, to a point. I mean, I don't think I'm going to divulge absolutely everything, but certainly if you go to tweetminer.net forward slash stats, you can see um, a lot of uh, detailed information about what's going on with stats. You know, how many signups there are, um, how much everyone's doing, and how much people are using the service. And uh, the thing that's not listed on there is, of course, the you know the money it's making. But I guess I'm saying that now. <laughs> um, well, that's not radically transparent. That's just really transparent. It's really transparent. Um, there's, <laughs> well, why don't you go radically transparent? Why are you, what, what are you scared of? Let's do it. I mean, right, this is kind of like a, a throwaway project anyway, in a sense, right? I mean, this was like an experiment. This was just something you were going to try to see if you could do something organically, something grow something small, side, sound a side project. I guess. I mean, I guess it is radically transparent. I th the only thing I'm worried about is, I mean, I must confess, I do have the fear that if it's successful, it will be copied. Well, here's the thing. I, okay, a couple of things. First of all, I'm I'm living vicariously through you because I'm excited about this. <laughs> I have to say, I'm more I'm much more excited about Tweetminer um, than I am about your other project where you're going to try and raise a lot of money. Just because that whole process of raising money and all that stuff just bores me to tears. Yeah. Where the idea of just getting something up and out there and people using it is exciting because. It's like uh, it's just the story's already started. You know, it's like watching, you know, the show's The Biggest Loser where everyone's trying to lose weight. Yeah. Right? I mean, in one sense, it's like, what a boring show. You talk about all these people who are really overweight and you're going to watch them exercise and, and get weight on a scale. I mean, who cares? But because you're part of the story, you're like, oh, I want to see how much this guy's lost. You know, it's like, I want to I see it. It's like, I could wait for this weekend because I, like, I wanted to, I wanted to see like how many users, users you had. Like, what, you know, what's the story, you know? And in fact, I almost emailed you or I am you, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to hold off and wait to the podcast. Right. <laughs> it makes it an interesting story. Now, now I'm part of the story. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm just, I, I just have, um, I'm, I'm more emotionally attached to the story because I know something about it. If you just said, if you just told me before, yeah, the old people are starting to pay, 
Well, that's not very interesting. Well, I mean, it's, it's part like of what we're trying to do with the podcast. I mean, basically, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people listening to our show who want to start, you know, a one-man web business and want to make money. And I guess what we're relaying here is what it's really like, you know. I mean, it's it, it's an interesting, interestingly, it's a lot of work. And, you know, it's, it, it is pretty small return. But I guess once you build it up, I mean, if, if you look at it this way, what it means is, Around about a thousand users who are signed up to the site are going to equal around a hundred dollars per month revenue. So five hundred users are going to equal about fifty dollars revenue, right? So I'm currently up to five hundred five hundred users. So to actually make a significant living, I'm going to have to get thirty thousand users. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, 000. well, see, this is here. Here's exactly my argument why it doesn't it doesn't hurt you to be radically transparent as opposed to just really transparent. Okay. <laughs> Okay, because, um, and I think we, we might have talked about this before, is that at this point, it's unproven, right? Nobody's going to go and spend months working on a similar service because they think they might make 50 or or $100 a month. It's stupid, right? Yeah. You, you know, and it'd be better for them to go and copy one of hundreds of other services that people are doing that are already making money and successful that already have, you know, two or five or 10 employees, right? They yeah. know we're making real revenue because they're like, oh, I can go copy this company. They have a, you know, they create a I don't know, bug tracking service or a invoice service or a, you know, whatever. And I know they have three or four employers, so they must be making X hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, which means, you know, right, it's real business. Yeah. Whereas TweetMind are like, hey, Justin made fifty dollars this month. I can't wait to go and compete with him. <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess. That's I mean, it's point. asinine. It's stupid because yeah. they would go. There's so many other things they could copy that if they really wanted to go and clone something. And the first thing is, the number of people who might have that idea and actually follow through is super small. And then also, by the time you actually get to the point where someone goes, "Holy smoke! There's real. There's gold in our hills, right?" I yeah. mean, you know, Justin's hit on a jackpot. You're, you'll be three or four years into it. You'll have an insurmountable advantage. Or not insurmountable advantage, but it'd be like, then you're just one of hundreds of successful companies that someone could decide to go compete against. Well, I think that my I am competing against some existing companies. I'm, I'm competing against two companies, um, CoTweet and Hootsuite. And both of those companies, as far, uh, as, far as, I'm, as far as I know, have millions of dollars of investment and you know, large teams or certainly more than one person. Uh, you know, building that company and developing their product. So it, it's kind of interesting to be just little old me, you know, against mm -hmm. the, the David versus Goliath. Well, it's a fun story. Well, that's why if you tell people how much you're making exactly, how many paying customers you are, you're open, just, just, just you know, as that you make a fun story that people want to, people want to follow. Yeah. To, to read other people's blogs to say they're really just kind of pretending to be you know, open about what they're doing. They're not really being open. They're not being open about what's what. What it's not interesting, right? Everybody's right. that open now yeah. that they're like, oh, we're coming with a new feature. Hey, we just got in a, we moved into a new office. This is really exciting. It's like snore. Yeah. You know, that's like boring. But what gets more interesting is when you you're sharing the the really important details, like how many customers does he have? How long, how many hours did he work on this thing? How much money is he making? And everybody wants to know it. So, and you you could make a very very good argument that it's really nobody's business. Yeah. However, if you do tell people to be interested and you'll get more of an audience and that might be your real color advantage that everybody wants to see how this David Goliath story, you know, how many, how many users does Justin have this week? Oh, he has nine paying users. Holy <laughs> <crap>. <laughs> you know? Well, he has 25, you know, and then a year goes by and you might have 
you know, a few hundred and people are like, wow, I remember when he had, you know, seven. <laughs> well, awesome. I mean, it, it's a very yeah, simple, it's a simple formula that's, that's repeatable. I mean, if, you know, the long and the short of it is every thousand users that register to the site, I'm going to be able to get approximately a hundred dollars revenue. So I just need to, you know, get 30,000 users signed up to the site. And you know that's it, really. Yeah, and 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 then what you got to figure out, I guess, is like how much, what's your user acquisition cost? I mean, right, right now it sounds like you're not paying, you're not spending any money on advertising. It's just like through, you know, you know, your blogging or twittering or whatever. But if um, if uh, you actually did like Google AdSense or some other, you you know, figure what is your cost? I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just not gonna do anything that incurs any cost. Um, cause I just can't afford it. Um, I mean, if you think about well, it, that's something you could, you could they, that's something you could do maybe in six months from now. Maybe you could say, all right, I want to put a hundred dollars a month in, you know, just as an experiment. Well, see. one thing I have done, um, during this last week is I've basically integrated it with, uh, an affiliate system. So an affiliate software, um, a product called iDev affiliate that is basically okay. a piece of PHP software that you install on your server and it allows you to attract uh, affiliate sales. Uh, that costs me $99. Um, and $99 a year. No, no, just $99. That's it. It's one time cost. Yeah. One time cost. And basically, um, they've got an incredibly simple API, uh, that really is just one function that you can add a sale to it. So I've just integrated, you know, at the point where my PayPal, uh, instant, instant PayPal notification happens, I just ping this affiliate software on the same server that it's, it's running on. And then it, um, it knows how to assign those to the affiliates because basically an affiliate, what happens is an affiliate comes to the affiliate link on, on my site. It sets the cookies tell it saying what their affiliate ID is. And then mm. if someone signs up to tweet minor, I basically log that affiliate ID into the user table. So then for, you know, from that point forward, let's say in five months time, if they pay that affiliate will then get credited with that money and also for every month. So if you know, if if someone uh, becomes an affiliate and someone signs up through them, basically, and they sign up for two years, they'll get a payment. You know, once a month for two years. Right. Uh, but the oh, but, sounds good. I mean, yeah. The the thing about that is, I guess, cost of acquisition is, uh, you know, I'm giving fifty percent of the revenue away for anyone who signs up through through the affiliate thing. So that yeah, is a large cost is, of acquisition. You know, that's that's pretty steep. You yeah. Know, I guess you have to see how that works out. Um, well, it's like 40% for 40% direct sales, but if anyone who they bring on signs someone else up, they also get 10% of their sales. It's like a two-tier thing. Right. So 50% of 50% of each sale, basically. But I don't think very many people will sign other affiliates up. You know, if any of the other people we've talked to, interviewed in the show, have, have used affiliates, like does Balsamic use affiliates? No, no. And we asked Peldy about it, and he didn't. And I think the answer that he gave was that it didn't really sort of suit his space. But um, if you think about it, TweetMiner essentially is a social tool and it's, it's in the social space. So it, it's the perfect candidate for affiliate marketing. Although I still feel like affiliate is a bit of a rude word, but <laughs> I'm trying it anyway just to see what happens. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it verges on that, that whole SEO world and stuff. I mean, I don't know. But well, let's, so, so you got six paying customers. Yeah. That was been pretty exciting, though, to get your first, the first. Well, the first, up, huh? yeah, the first sign. I mean, it's uh, the other thing to bear in mind is that you know, of those 400 users, I gave them like I've got three plan levels. I've got a five dollar a month, a ten dollar a month, and a twenty dollar a month. And okay, the first 400 who signed up, 
I basically, because they helped me beta test it, you know, I, I uh-huh. made a promise to them that I was going to give them a free subscription. So I gave them all the $5 a month plan for a year for free. Okay. So the people who did sign up basically upgraded from the $5 plan to either the $10 plan or the $20 plan. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. It makes yeah. sense too. Well, that's cool though. So uh, get the payment system works. So now you've got your arms around the problem, right? You built it, you got beta testers, you got people using it, and then you got people paying for it. There's the, I've got one, uh, one uh, what, what, what do we call it? Like, I guess a cross between a helpful user and a super user, uh, Tommy, mm-hmm. uh, called Tommy. And basically, uh-huh. he uh, is just insanely into the pro- into the product. Like he's really, really into the product, and he he just you know he's sort of IMing me all day and and putting features onto the um, get satisfaction system, and you know using it twenty four seven. So right. and, and also evangelizing it via his uh, Twitter stream, where he's got twenty thousand users, twenty thousand followers. Great. So yeah. well, that's, your, that's your power user. Yeah. They call this, a, and if he's telling with you, uh, he'd be what you'd call a super spreader. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it's good to get those make those people happy. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I read an article or a post this morning on uh, Hacker News. I don't know where the link was, but it's talking about how it was commenting on uh, how Robert Scola wrote something about how his wife you doesn't use Facebook correctly because. She uh, just uses it to communicate with her close friends and family. Yeah. And that most people use it like that way, but should be using it to connect with people on the public sphere and all this kind of stuff. And this guy was like, Robert Scoble is an idiot. He's like, that's why you don't want to listen to these new media types because they aren't the real users. The real users are like Scoble's wife. That's yeah. how the vast majority of people use it. Just because there's, you know, a few hundred people out there who are, you know, trying to get a lot of people to listen to what they have to say. That's they're the very special case. And and following their lead is probably gonna lead you down the wrong path. Because they're not I don't know what users. Yeah, no, no I mean I agree with that. But what's been really interesting is um the, the tweet miner stats page, by following that and having, you know, a super user, moderate users and low users. Uh, and really carefully looking at those statistics is how I came up with the price plans. And I, I don't think I would have been able to do it without really studying the, you know, the analytics and the stats of what people were doing, how people were really using it. And by far, you know, the majority of people are using it, you know, they may be logging in once a day for a couple of minutes and that's it. Yeah. yeah no, that, well, that makes sense. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen to them, but like, I think that, well, this guy's comment was like, is don't think of them as your typical user. You said, no, okay, this is not my typical user, but this is an, an important segment. Well, that, user. a user like that should be paying, you know, in the highest band, basically. So I, I guess what I'm saying is what's what, one thing that I would recommend to anyone if they're, if they're launching any kind of web service, subscription service or service based on people, I guess, using their, their product, I don't know, the number of uploads or the number of documents they make or whatever, it's it's been such a useful exercise to analyze the stat. Like basically let everyone use it for free for a, a couple of months, like, and then see what they do. So rather than coming up with the price points based on uh, what you think they should be, come up with your price points based on what you can see people do. You know, that's, well, I think that's a great idea because you know, it's, you hear that all the time with about software and web services that people have, this impression or this I, no, sorry, this idea yeah. about how their users are going to interact with the site, and it turns out to be usually wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, were the way that people were using the site different than what you had expected? 
completely 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 like i i had expected okay the, the my big fear remember we were discussing about scaling right so my my big fear was that if i had 20,000 users it was going to completely kill the server because people would would be making x amount of twitter calls right but mm-hmm. but what's really really surprised me is that like 80% of people log in and it makes about i don't know 20 AP, api calls to twitter and that's their mm-hmm. da- that's their daily usage and they right. just they just log in and they make those you know they just spend a couple of minutes online and they make those 20 calls to twitter so so that means that i can scale to 20,000 users because if 80% of people are that level i can give them the service for free yeah, well, that's that's. I think it's the same thing. Like these um, telcos and stuff complain about like there's like one percent of the users or point one percent use like ninety percent of the bandwidth because they're they're all downloading torrents of high definition movies. Yeah, that nobody else is using, you know. And so, in some sense, being able to charge for bandwidth usage, you know, you can see why they would that that would make sense. Well, that- you know, to say hey, these guys are getting gigabytes and gigabytes of movies every day <laughs> you know they're killing it for everyone you know? i mean that's why i literally use the number of api calls that the account does as the breaks between the plans so in other words you know anyone free can have up to 250 api calls a day and then the, and then after that they need to pay and then it's they get a thousand a day for five bucks a month and then after that they get yeah. three thousand a day for ten bucks a month and then they get See that's twelve thousand a day for twenty bucks a month. You see, and so that covers my costs. So my costs are going to be covered if anyone starts to become a super user. And in terms of free users, I can scale it out to many, many people. Yeah. By the way, I think the term you want to use is power user, not super user. A super user is kind of like an administrator. Oh, okay. Like a logging network or machine. I think if you say super user, that's what I think a lot of people are going to think you're. That's what you mean. It's like a administrator. Yeah, I've got power, power user, user listed on the listed on the plan. It's just I'm just using the wrong. Verbi- Do you say verbiage or verbiage? I don't really either say, say either. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> you say words. I don't know if I've ever used verbiage or verbiage in a sentence. Okay. <laughs> verbiage. I'd probably say verbiage. Verbiage. I, was, I think it because in the UK we say verbiage. But anyway. Yeah, well, you say a lot of stuff. You think beta instead of beta. I don't know. I mean. You know, whatever. <laughs> hey, but you know, it's interesting though. The other thing is, you say is, because the whole reason we were talking about pay, getting paid users, and and releasing your product early, and we just just continues to, to to reinforce why it's so important. Because I don't. It doesn't matter how smart you are and how well you think you know your user base. You don't. It's just speculation. It's just a hypothesis. It's only when you get real world data, and and uh, that you know what's going on, and that how people are going to use it. And that what you're saying is. And what you've discovered is that's exactly right. You know, you're a smart guy. You know what you're building. You use Twitter, and guess what? You're wrong. <laughs> Your yeah. users were going to use it. Yeah. And uh, and it was and the, and what you did that really worked for you is that you got it into beta quickly, and then you got and now you're getting into payment. So now you're going to know. And also, you if you're wrong about your price points and things like that, you probably figure that would probably become apparent very quickly too. Yeah, I think so. I think so because I'll see people keep on hitting the limit and not upgrading. And then I'll be like, why is that happening? You know, another thing, uh, another thing that I did was, you know, I kept on getting the same questions, you know, people saying, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? So I just put in basically a pop-up, you know, when they log in, you know, the most common things that they do at the point that they're doing it, it just does a little pop-up and says, oh, by the way, to do this, you do this. 
and then it, there's a little checkbox and they can basically say you know never show me this again so we call that interstitial help systems but it's it's mm -hmm. amazing since i've put that in that you know like those requests have gone down to basically zero so what so of what percentage of your requests did that did it go down how much you reduce your overall questions well, the the one question that people have like an eighty percent reduction or fifty percent reduction in your support questions. Oh, in my in the overall support qu questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I see. I don't really get questions now. I just get suggestions and bug feature and and you know, bug reports and suggestions. So I guess it brought it down, you know, like ninety percent to just the questions oh, wow. of how do I use this? Yeah, because the main one was um, on in the interface. Next to each Twitter stream, so if I had, I can have a Twitter stream and I can call it, um, you know, Jason, right? And if if I can add that and then I can delete it, but people didn't know how to delete it because it's kind of hidden functionality. You have to hover over the icon next to your name and click it. So right. I just said that in the pop-up and then that, that question, which was coming to me about, you know, five or ten times a day, you know, stopped. You could also do in addition to you know to the interstitial help is actually changing the interface. The stuff is immediately obvious just for them looking at it too. Is I mean yeah uh, yeah yeah and you know a lot of you know the interface is so difficult because everyone wants something different. That's the only thing. Like yeah, people don't like like Apple has a lot of hidden functionality. No? Don't right. care about it too much. Right. Well, I mean if. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of things you could say about that. I'm not. I mean, this is definitely more because it's like it's it like Windows. You know, it's like um, is this going to be a Windows application that's got all things to all people with hundreds of buttons that you can twiddle, or is it going to be an Apple application that's real simple and easy to look at and clean? And I'd I think rather, that answers. I think question answers itself. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather go with option B. So I'm going with option B. But what that means is that some of the functionality needs to be hidden. And I think that Peldy feels the same way about this because remember he was talking about the um, I. I was saying to him, I wish there was a way that you could put in Laurie Ipsum text. He said, oh, you just, just type Laurie Ipsum and it happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. I mean, uh, you know, in, in this this um, this little this sort of side project that I'm working on, I mean, that's my approach too, is I want as the inner UI is, is the, the simplicity of the UI is going to be such a key part of it. That's one of my big focuses. And the other part is sort of like, um, having sort of like a, a wizard-like interface yeah. that's walking you through things. Because I think, like, if you go to, like, a, a bank ATM and you do any type of financial transaction, there's nothing you can't do that isn't obvious how to do it because it only gives you two or maybe four or five choices. And it, yeah. So the, your five choices, you know, do you want to deposit it or do you want to draw or do you want to transfer? Or, okay, do you want to withdraw from checking or savings? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. It's like, how can you not know what's going on? But if it was just, like... If it just had like file view window, <laughs> it's like open new transaction, you know, yeah. start checking, you'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, I don't want to go to the ATM, it's a pain. Hey, when is, your, always when is your product going to be ready? Because it'd be great if we could, we could sort of talk about your product in the same way as we're talking about TweetMiner. Oh, so oh yeah, just well, I'll talk open. around it a little bit now. I'll talk around it a little bit now. I mean, I, I, I am very motivated to get it out there as soon as possible because I completely understand the reality of release early, release often, and get real data. Absolutely. So the as soon as it has it is minimally workable, as soon as the minimalist, the most, the simplest thing that will actually work will work. I will have it out there. So with that said, I mean, I don't know, six to eight weeks maybe, which really? is still pretty soon. But you it's, remember, I mean, I'm spending 
you know, five hours a week on it, maybe. I suppose the other thing is the nature of your work is, you know, very complicated JavaScript, uh, rich application stuff, which does take quite a long time to get right. Yeah, and it's very complicated in the back end too. It's very complicated all the way around, and it's a big problem. But I'm and, and I'm trying to position it so that it's solving a big problem, but it's going to solve an important small part of it first. Right. That's all. Like you know, and then try try and find what can we do, what can we solve that will allow us to get something out in a couple months as opposed to eighteen months from now, and that it won't be like that. It, that it won't be at the core of the problem. You know, I want to I want to sort of get the core of it solved, and because. Uh, you know, as I said, we've, we've had a million reasons why, you know, psychologically, financially, you know, strategically, why it's important to get it out there. But, um, I yeah. Just, but just, yeah, of course, it work too, you know, it has to, has to, something, has to do something, <laughs> Yeah. you know. I just want to make a quick so. apology to our listeners about the sound quality. Um, I know that Jason sounds a bit, a bit choppy there. Um, we decided that we were going to record anyway. We've tried reconnecting on Skype, I don't know, 10 times before the show. And in the end, it was either... You know, don't record a show or record a show with choppy sound quality. So, you know, hope, hopefully you can forgive that sound quality. But anyway, I just wanted to say that, Jason, just before we went on, because it's been it's been a little okay. bit sketchy up to this point. Um, yeah, no problem. But but I have to say though, I mean, it's motivating. I mean, as much as we know this story about how to how to start a side project and and sort of um, evolve it into a a, a, a revenue stream and and something that can actually grow into a company as opposed to just something you screw around with every other weekend um and you know but actually see you do it right hmm. so quickly i mean it's uh, it's like it's a motivate it's like yeah okay so you should just you know get something out there just get it going you know follow my because obviously i'm giving you i'm i'm sort of you know haranguing you about like start charging man start charging you know so i gotta follow my own advice to get it out there first <laughs> well that's right i mean just yeah just get it out there because I'll tell you something yeah. else that's incre- that I found incredibly motivating is the get – okay, the two, two things. Get satisfaction, right? It's, it is very motivating to have that suggest feature or report a bug link on the top of every page. It's very, very good because that get satisfaction thing builds a sense of community. And it's incredible how much stuff gets posted there. I mean, this, thing's only, this thing hasn't been going long, you know, and there's already, I don't know, four pages worth of feature requests, you know? And uh, it, like that's 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 a lot, you know. There's like 25 per page, <laughs> and there's right. there, there's bug reports. I, I try and get through the bug stuff as quickly as possible. But what's great is that people, you know, it's got those little happy faces and sad faces when you when you post something through. Like it sounds okay. it sounds silly, but when you read when you read through them and people have happy faces, it makes you feel good. <laughs> it's like oh yeah, everyone yeah. seems happy. <laughs> so that's, that's quite a motivating. You know? And um, and then also having a couple of you know uh, people who are really into the product who want to evangelize it, um, it, it's great because you know they're they're onto you and they're coming back with ideas, and yeah, so that's that's another great reason to get it out there. But don't just get it out there; really try and build a community around your product. Like I think building a community around your product is is a very important part, especially if you're just one guy because you don't have a partner. You know, you don't have anyone to make you to bring you up to pep you. You know, yeah. Well, um, I think I think you've probably seen that in the success of a lot of products. It was the community that really helped propel it. I mean, like Flickr was like probably the best example of that, or mm. one of the best examples, right? I mean, the huge um, community supporting it. I mean, I can probably see that about most things. You know, like, do you, you know, what's that service? Oh, go on. Do you think that social is now 
I mean, do you think that social is like any any app? It doesn't really matter what it is. Do you think that social is going to be just a huge piece, a huge part of all new apps coming out over the next few years? I think it can be an important one. It, it probably depends. Uh, not every app is necessarily a social app, but to the extent that it, that you can make integrate it, that it makes sense. Sure. Um, I, I, yeah, and uh, you should do it. I mean, because it only works to your. It usually just works to your advantage. I would think. I mean, think um, about it's Amazon. kind of one of those things that's like. Yeah, well, Amazon's a great example. I mean, I read comments and uh, you know, and, and the reviews all the time. And I read, I look at people's book lists, and I look at sometimes the blogs of the of the author. They sometimes have like little blog, mini blogs on there. I mean, what yeah. kind of app wouldn't benefit from social? I don't know. I mean, you know, was, I mean, there's probably utility programs. <laughs> you don't necessarily need a utility. I mean, does your SSH client need a social network built around it? No, but you can you have, but, but you can have a support community around it around the product which is which is a whole yeah, social I mean, aspect maybe, of the product yeah maybe so i mean i'm just trying to think i mean yeah i mean it, it probably makes sense i mean especially since it's not that hard to do now i mean it i mean you see so, so many examples of how to what 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 you need to implement in your in your service or product in order to facilitate a social art community yeah you know different types of forums and different types of and blogs and different types of you know feedback things and it probably doesn't take that much and most of it's pretty easy if you're off the shelf stuff or if you wrote it yourself it wouldn't take that long and then you got it and then it helps yeah i mean and then it keeps you in close contact with your customers because a lot of the data we've talked about with you is you understand your customer base and part of you understanding it also will probably communicate with them so you understand not just the numbers but what is they're saying What's do you think that you should plug local bacon in to get satisfaction and make we it do. work incredibly it is easy. Is, is it incredibly it is easy? Is it like at the top of every page, like one of the first things people can see, make a suggestion? Yeah, I think so. It has been, yeah. And um, and then working up like a comment. There's like a commenting system that integrates with like Facebook Connect and different things like that. So, yeah, Joe is um, very in tune with all that stuff. He really wants to have all this stuff integrated. So how much you know, how like, much feedback are you getting? I don't know. I, I don't I don't read the feedback. <laughs> you know, that's Joe's Joe Joe is the one who does you know, who who you know, does all that stuff. Okay. I hear you. Um, I hear you. It's not I mean, of it, course he forwards me stuff that's a uh, Yeah. But it's this not, is one of like five projects in a plan, right? I mean I, I don't spend any more time on it than I absolutely have to. And so reviewing gets satisfaction. You know, when Joe has emailed me like five things, you know. Well, it's not your biz dev. Out. You're not biz. You're not doing biz dev for that project in the same way that I'm doing biz dev for Tweetminer. I mean, for your for That's your right. project, when you release your uh, secret X project, and you have your yeah. community, then you will be very involved in the community because you're going to be the only biz oh, dev yeah. guy on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's my idea. I'm going to be defining the strategy. I'm going to understand my customer base. I mean, in local bacon, I mean, it's Joe. Joe's the one defining the strategy. You know, uh, communicating with in investors and uh, doing everything, right? And he yeah. just says, "Hey, you know, he we might have short discussions about like what features might be more important or what might be good ideas about the design or whatever." But ultimately, it's he's driving it. You know, I'm not I'm not pro too proactive in that sense. And, and and the reason mostly is just I just don't have the time to be. You know, it's like I have a very minimal amount of time that I can solve. And if he emails me three or three to five like fires that have to be put up by tomorrow, then I just need to sit down and crank those out. I can't just be like paging through get satisfaction things and going, hey, Joe, maybe we should do X, Y, and Z. You know? Yeah. So like, I don't have time for it. But I, so, but I do. I think it's important 
somebody in the company needs to be doing it. You know, and if I was if I was working on local bacon full time, and I probably would be participating in that kind of stuff. You know, it would make sense for me to be more involved in that yeah. kind of stuff. But you know, if if I have ten hours a week or something, and uh, you know, what, what what would be better for me to spend my time doing? And if I would you want me to spend three or four hours a week reading user stuff? No, because otherwise nothing gets built. <laughs> on Fixed. the just on another note, um, on the on my other project, my other startup, the 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 one where we're going for the big investment. Um, we've now come to the culmination of uh, four months worth of work to get the pitch together, and we're just about this this coming Monday. We're about to send out to fifteen targeted um, investors. Um, the executive these venture capitalists or angels well, or what? kind of angels and venture capitalists. I mean, basically the raises the raises a million, which is you know it it's That's a seed round, yeah. It's sort of seed, but it's it's a really difficult raise because it's not quite big enough for venture capitalists, you know, for um, institutional funding. And it's not quite small enough for angel. So it's it, we're sort of going for some angels and we're also going for some VCs. So it's going to be an interesting process. But um, Yeah, I, th I think they, I think Joe's experience with local bacon, I mean, you know, he's the one doing all this stuff, but I, you know, obviously talked to him about it and it's fun hearing about it. But, um, you know, he's, I don't know how many VCs he's talked to now. He's probably had meetings with a couple dozen at least. Yeah. I mean, when I say meetings, I mean, he's like a lot of them he's had like, you know, maybe five to 10 conversations with, you know? Yeah. So, but, and then, I mean, he's probably had a couple dozen or oh, maybe, God, 30 or more. You include 40, maybe if you include all the angels he's talked to and stuff. And it seems to me that the, uh, my, that, which has been an interesting process because, you know, you, you read about all this stuff on the web and people's experience raising money, but then you go through it uh, or you go for, through it vicariously like me. Yeah. <laughs> you, you kind of see what really happens. It's like most of VCs do what you say, which is that they're not really interested in the million. They're like the A round, you know, four million yeah. kind of range, right? Yeah. And two million, if you're going to go for two, you might as well ask for four, I think, for most of the VCs. Now, to go straight from like no funding to an A round, totally skip the seed is is rare. Like it's hard to do that. Yeah. My, way I, way I, from what I'm understanding from this process and talking to Joe and what he hears back from everybody, it's like to go straight from like, hey, here's our little prototype we built and we scratched together a couple months, give us $4 million. It's rare. It's like if you rent TechCrunch 50, you might be able to pull that off. You know, like if you were mint or, or one of those things. But even that is usually rare. Like if you like posturous and all those things, they got like, you know, between a quarter and three quarters of a million seed round. But I have, I have and heard. Uh, okay, no, you go. Sorry, you keep me. And then, and then they go, they get their seed round, um, you know, whatever that is, it's a hundred thousand dollars or, or three quarters of a million or whatever it is. They get their seed round through angels and family and friends or whatever, and then they go, uh, and then they prove that out, and then they go with a round. It seems to be that VCs seem to prefer that model because it's too small for them. They can't afford to be. Well, Investing. I, the only thing is, is, is um, my, the, the guy who, um, like my, my main partner in the project, is you know very experienced at raising funds, and he was he was telling me that uh, in the same way Brown is the new black, um, a million is the new A round. <laughs> that that uh, but, right. but because at the end of the day, you know, we're coming to a point where you don't actually need four million to to build a lot of these offerings, you know, mm -hmm. like. It, the reason, the reason, you know, a big part of the reason why it was four million was because the technology was so expensive. You know, you needed so much money. Mm -hmm. You didn't have so much stuff built for you. 
Whereas now you have, you know, Ruby on Rails that gives you a lot of libraries. So you're out the starting gate a lot faster, you know. Um, you've got cloud services, you've got servers, you can basically pay as you go for so many of these products. So you can amateurize the costs mm -hmm. rather than pay up front. So that's, a, that's mm -hmm. another reason why funds. And the, the other thing is there's this whole trend with VCs looking at, I don't know whether you've been reading any of this stuff on Hacker News, but the VC funds in general, the, the return is very, very low. But, you know, if you take, right. if you take the composite of how much... You mean the return rate? No, basically, you there? Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. See, when, when you when you say the re return is low, what do you mean the return is low? As in the number what of the, the number of successes and the number of money made versus the amount of investment made. So. Oh, so okay. So the, so the rate of return on their overall investment. So if they have a hundred million in their fund, well, then what's the after ten years? What's the rate of return on, on that? Exactly, but but there's the, I can't remember that who who was talking about this. But I read a really interesting article um, by a guy who basically had done the research and looked at all the funds and all of the return and showed how over the last 20 years, the return has gone from being really good to really bad. So now it's sort of forced VCs into the position where, you know, the, uh, the only approach they can take is to try and sort of find the company that is going to be, you know, the multi-billion dollar company. Like that basically yeah, I think part of that is that it's part of the reason is that you can't take public because of survey and stuff. It's just it's so expensive and so prohibitive to go public anymore that there's just not a very good what they call liquidity event or exit for these guys. Yeah, you know, I mean, in it's great for like building these smaller, you know, uh, businesses, these like two, five, ten, twenty person businesses. But that's not really what VCs are interested in because they can't make the huge returns. Now, you or I might be like, hey, man, if I could build a company and in five years I got 10 employees and we're cranking out cash and can pay ourselves nice, big, fat salaries, that'd be awesome. Like 37 Signals, right? There's the, they're the perfect example. I mean, those guys probably rake in cash per, in, at an individual level. And, um, but VCs, to some degree, I mean, wouldn't really care so much about that because they're not going to make their massive multi-million dollar exits. I mean, 37 Signals is a little bit of a special case because they're an, are sort of iconic, but somebody like them would be less... I would think but it'd be less enticing. If you think, if you think, if you sort of think about it, you know, the, the overall VC strategy, basically each investment is like playing the lottery now because they've mm -hmm. got, their funds are so big. They've got so much money to invest, right? And they, they you know, they've got such a, a debt that they have to get back that it sort of means that every investment they make is like a lottery because what they really need to make it work is they need a Facebook, you know, or a Twitter to make their fund work. That's what they need. Right. So what I'm saying is, it, if it is like the lottery, then that could be a reason why a million could be the new A, because they could then basically have, you know, four times more lottery tickets. They spread their bets out. They're, yeah. they're spreading their risk out. Well, exactly. yeah, diversification. But I guess I'm trying to think. Well, the thing is interesting about VCs is that you always hear about how, like, they're going to add all this value, right? They're going to send their board and they're going to tell you what you should be doing, you know, or, or whatever. I'm kind of skeptical that they really can help you that much because every time that I've been working on something and I get advice from investors, it's always kind of like, yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> I mean, like, right? I mean, you know, not, not, that, not that they're not smart people and they don't care, but you're a smart person. You think about this all day, every day. You know, so it's not like, hey, I never thought of that. That's rare. And at least been in my experience that usually kind of known those things. And so in, in VCs, even if they're kind of familiar with their space, it seems like, you know, 
Well, well anyway, look, I, I don't but know. But if you're stuck, if you're stuck into the product, maybe you can't see the wood for the trees. And um, that might be true. But, you know, a um, VC isn't true, quite so attached. That might be true. I'm I, I'm sort of fading that. I'm sort of like I don't give that a whole lot. Which was like, oh, we're going to bring all this strategic expertise. I I would kind of be like very pessimistic of that. If you have if they have this great strategic idea that I hadn't thought of, I would be you know great. It'd be great, but I just wouldn't. I don't know. That just doesn't. Well, okay. Well, I'll, I can tell you where it definitely makes a difference. I mean, I, I could unequivocally know that it makes a difference in this way. If you if your first investment, if your first bit of money from seed investment is from someone who is believed to be good in the space. So rather than getting dumb money, you get money from someone who's in your space. And when I say so you're, it's not, it's not dumb money. It's 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 uh, credible money. Yeah, but but right? I, when I say it's in your space, like I, I I don't just mean someone investing in you because you know they happen to invest in software. I mean someone who invests in you because you're building a social network and they invest in social networks. Like they're really in your space. That what that means is is that even if you don't make any money within your first year or whatever, when you go to your next round, which may be your Series A, your Series B, you're infinitely more likely to get funded by the next bunch of people because they see that you've got the smart money from the first person, even if they never did anything for you. Just the very fact that it's them. And then the same the same goes from every round to the next round to the next round. So if you have people who are good at you know special uh, Series B investors and they give you the money, even if you don't make any money, it, you're way more likely to get the Series C because you followed the path of the people, even if they didn't give you any advice. So that is where it can make a difference about how these investors can bring value. They just bring value by the fact that you're more likely to get future investment by having them on board. Yeah, and I, now that's true, but that's you know that's all about like credibility in terms of raising more money. I guess um, I don't know. I mean, but well, we'll, we'll point reason I brought that up is like you know if they have to if if the new Series A is 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 one million instead of four million, then and if they want to have the same amount of like involvement and influence on all these companies, they're gonna have to have four times the many amount of number of associates or whatever people who can go around it because there's only so many hours in the day. So now they have four times my companies. Either they have a fourth of the amount of influence or time they spend on it, or they have four times the amount of number of employees. That's very interesting you say that because, because the Mark Andreessen Fund uh, specifically aims to invest something like 500000 to a million and says that they don't want a hands-on approach. They're basically going to give you the money and you can do, you know, you can do your own strategy. See, that's, more what, I, that's what I'm getting at. Like, like you know, I would say... Um, the whole, actually, the whole point, and I didn't really state this very well, is that you know, give the money, you find the team and the, the product space, and you know, whatever that you like, and then give them the money, and then be like, all right, do it. You know, I'll see you next year or something. You know, and have minimal. You don't don't go overboard on like, oh, we gotta you know, babysit these guys and sit in on these board meetings every, you know, quarter and all this kind of stuff. Um, that way, you're right. Like Mark Andreessen, I think, has the right idea. It's sort of the you know, the buckshot approach. It's the same kind of thing as like, um, you know, Y Combinator and Paul Graham and those guys. I mean, they obviously at a much smaller scale, they get yeah. like 20,000 or whatever it is. But, you know, Mark Andreessen is like further up the stream or down the stream or whatever, and that they're like, I were half a million and we have many fewer investments than that. But I think it makes sense. Yeah, because you don't need as much money. And even if you look at those things like the Mythical Band Month, and, you know, they talk about like just adding developers, adding people, doesn't always make things go 
fast, it actually slows them down oftentimes. So just because you have five developers instead of one or two, sometimes it just costs a lot of money because now you got to spend the money. It's like, oh, we got to feel like we're really moving this thing forward. But all you're doing is slowing things down and, and burning a lot of money. I don't understand that that Y Combinator thing, the 20 grand thing, right? And I think 20 grand is like one of the biggest investments they give. I don't understand how that makes any difference to a business because to me, I, I, what can you do with 20 grand? Nothing. I think basically it must just be because you're involved with Y Combinator and involved in the incubation environment. I don't think the money actually means anything. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think if they have sort of two categories of people, I mean, their primary category, they seem to really be aiming at like, kids who are in college or right out of college, you know, something in the 20 to 26, 27 range, you know, not married, no kids, no mortgage, used to living off like, you know, nothing or living in a dorm or living off a living off graduate beans. age. Yeah. So it's like, Hey, you've been living off a graduate stipend, you know, even off 12 or 15 or 20 grand a year, you can, you know, spend three months doing this just like a graduate stipend. You know, it's not really aimed at 30-somethings who are used to making 100 or $150,000 a year who have, you know, expenses and responsibilities because it's not going to work. Yeah. Now, there are – like, I think I saw this interview. I think it was um, this week in startups. Um, they were interviewing the guy uh, – one of the guys from um, Posterous. Yeah. Um, you know, Posterous, right? And uh, um, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, but he, they, they took it. But he said the real thing is they didn't really need it. It wasn't much money for them, um, but it was just being part of, just like what you said, it was just being part of Y Combinator, getting that sort of credibility. Because if you're a Y Combinator startup, you're going to get, ex- you're going to get some, you might get some good ideas and some good insight from Paul Graham and those guys. Mm. You might, you probably meet a lot of other interesting, you know, people doing startups, which might be ultimately useful in the long run and it may be useful in the short run. And you get that credibility thing, right? Because they have that, like, hey, you're a Y Combinator company and you get the whole demo day and they bring in all these other investors and stuff. For all those reasons, it's probably worth it even if you didn't give any money mm. or next to nothing. So I think you're right about that. Yeah, it's interesting. But um, I personally, I'm much more excited about the idea of not taking money, of building it on the side. Complete doing consulting work. Yeah, I, I like that idea better because... For me personally, I mean, everybody has their own sort of like what they're trying to achieve. I don't like having to do all the investor stuff. I don't like raising money. I don't like, um, I don't like writing business plans. I don't like pitching. I hate all that crap. I hate it. I find it boring. I find it like to be meta work and I don't want to do it. And then, of course, I don't want to tell other people telling me what I should be doing if I think they're wrong because ultimately I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do or we're going to fight. <laughs> You know? Yeah. And I don't want to fight. You know? I don't want to argue. <laughs> I hate arguing and fighting. So I just assume if I don't want to fight and argue and I want to do it my way, then the best thing is just to do it by myself or do it with a partner who's like minded. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know? Yeah. I mean, partner, it sounds like partner would be good for you, really, who could do the stuff that you didn't want to do. Yeah. If I had to do that. Now, I, you know, I have Guyon is working with me. Like, Guyon was the guy who helped me build, build Prezo as a consultant. I mean, he only worked with me like five, maybe eight hours a week on Prezo yeah. for like years and he's he and I are the same in the sense that we're both you know primarily software developers yeah. you know, I've done you know business stuff a couple times I've started companies and raised money and done sales and done all that stuff I don't like it I avoid it but I, I, I know how to do it um, he hasn't done any of that um, but what does what is good about working with him is that especially on a side project is that it forces me to work on it every day. Even if I feel like I'm overwhelmed by stuff I have to get done tomorrow, he, he's calling me up and we have a, we generally have a thing that we work together like an hour and a half a day 
or an hour, depending on what time he calls, because he's in Norway. So he'll call yeah. me at like, you know, 1.30 or 2 p.m. my time, and we'll work until he just it crashes, you know, midnight yeah. his time. And it might be like an hour, hour and a half later, and we just work together. So a lot of times I'm in the middle of something else, and I'm like, ah, oh, i got to get stuff done. I'm like, well, all right, so I work on this for an hour. With the guy, but it keeps, the, it keeps the train moving forward. You hey, know? is, is Guy on a um, consultant, like contract worker? No. No, he's full-time job. He works for Loop, I think, which is like a – they do like a, a smartphone micro – some type of micro payment thing or, or something. I, I would love to find someone who could uh, – you know, who's good at JavaScript uh, in, to the sort of level that we're at and Guy on and just find someone to who I may be able to you know get to a couple of hours work every so often on Tweetminer to deal with some of the bugs yeah. or whatever. That would be kind no, of cool. He works full – he works full time, and then you know his the little bit of hour that he does have. He works. He's we're working on this uh, side project, project with you, yeah. Thing. So yeah, because yeah, we'd done he he'd worked with me as a consultant. I mean, I paid him. Um, we worked on Prezo, and then when that thing when Prezo went, sort of ran out of capital, and you know, and I'm like, hey, guy, and it's just you know, do you want to work on something? Just want to work on something together? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, he we took like a month and a half break or something because he had I think they moved. It was in the process of moving from London to Norway. And so they were kind of, he was kind of occupied with other stuff. But then hmm. when he kind of, when things got sort of organized and he kind of had a little bit of time, he called me up and he's like, hey, let's, let's do something. So, you know, we, we were working on another project and then we ended up working on this one. We, we sort of switched gears um, in like uh, March of uh, this past year, April, and we've been working on this thing. That's interesting. Um, but it's good because it's good to have a second person because it keeps, you know, if you ever feel like getting depressed about it, like feel like oh, it's too much work or it's not ready to get done, you have someone else there kind of pushing forward. And it's just more fun. You know, it's so, just more fun. I mean, the only thing I would say is it's like, and I would say like, like, um, you know, if you have a workout partner, right? Like if somebody you go to the gym with, you work out with, and some people, do, if that person is lazier than you, <laughs> you yeah. don't want that workout partner, right? Because you're like, oh, if you, they're like, oh, let's go, we're gonna go work out. And they're like, ah, oh, I don't think I'm gonna go today because I got blah 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 to do, you know, or I don't feel like it. That's just gonna make it. That's gonna hurt, be worse for you. But if this person is like more motivated and more disciplined than you, then that's who you want, right? Because you know, every time you think it's slagging off, they're like, come on, let's go, we gotta, we gotta do this thing, right? Actually, talking you about know? health, I, I've got something to tell you which I forgot. Um... I, fa I found out that I've been diagnosed, well, basically just recently, I was diagnosed after medical tests with celiac disease. What does that mean? It basically means that your body has an autoimmune reaction to gluten, which is found in wheat, barley, and rye. So if you... Oh, I know a guy. I knew a guy who had that. Yep. So, so basically I, I what happens that. is your, your intestine, the, 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 the villi, which basically the, these little wavy things... That absorb the nutrients because your body attacks itself they all kill each other or the body kills them so they're not there to uh, absorb any of the actual nutrients of the food so the, uh, only, the only thing you really get is calories no nutrients you end up getting fat and you and then you end up getting brittle bone brittle bones you know and you're weak and you get brain fog and all that sort of stuff so i've had this bloody you, thing for 40 so years and without any idea fire, huh? yeah exactly in your brittle little bones. Okay, now it all makes sense now. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, I, I, I've had this freaking thing for 40 years without any idea. And then, you know, I just how, found... How did, you, how did you get diagnosed? I mean, what happened? You get a small blood test or something? Uh, well, basically just medical tests. I don't want to go into the details. 
No, but I mean, what, what did you not feel well that you went and said, "Hey, I'm going to get a test"? Yeah, well, I mean, I've just, it's just been gradually, you know, getting over the last twenty years. I've just been gradually getting more and more weird things going wrong with me. You know, just like mm. brain fog, <laughs> and just. Oh, you know. we should, yeah, maybe we should change the 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 this, the title of this podcast to "This Week in Medical Mysteries," <laughs> <laughs> starring Justin. <laughs> anyway, so the so the upshot of it is, I can't and eat wheat. And host. <laughs> I can't eat wheat. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I, uh, a, a a guy I knew had that, and I remember we went to um, we'd both played soccer together at in college, and we were going to a professional soccer game. I think it was like a national team game. Yeah, uh, here at the Rose Bowl. I lived just a couple miles from the Rose Bowl, and the national team was playing in the Gold Cup. And this I don't know how many years ago this was, and we're sitting there in the stadium, and he has like his own little lunch that he brought in like, like a little Tupperware thing, and I'm like, what are you doing? And I'm like, let's go get like a slice of pizza or hamburger or something, you know, at the concession. He's like, oh, no, I can't eat, you know, this stuff. So he had to make all it. He's make, you know, prepare his meal specially because of that. And so I you, guess you're going to have to do that, right? You're you careful now what you eat. Exactly. And you cannot believe how much stuff like, OK, the first thing is the first thing is, is I, I shouldn't be laughing about this because it's serious. But the, the amount of <laughs> the amount of gluten that it takes for, for this to happen to me. Right. So let's say I completely cured myself. Right. To, to mm-hmm. get to get to get the issue again to stop the malabsorption and to to bring the, the symptoms back, the amount of gluten it takes is what a pinhead's worth. Wow! So so wow. Be super vigilant then. Huh? And it is in everything, like all my favorite things, like beer. <laughs> yeah. You know, toast, pizza, bread, pasta, Sandwiches. bread. But even soy sauce, like I thought, you know, I was having sushi the other night, and then I and then I found out that the soy sauce that I had was full of freaking oh, gluten. Anyway, sorry, I know it's not tech, but I thought you'd be interested. Well, the good news is, I tell you, this friend of mine, I mean, he was skinny as a rail. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> he, he lost weight. I look, I was like, holy smoke! Andy. Who'd have thought? I thought the reason I was fat was because like... I haven't done any exercise for ten years. <laughs> but it's nothing to do with that. Wow. So, have you changed your entire diet now? Or is your you completely all? Well, I mean, I'm like, I'm like, you know, a week into it. But yeah, I've changed. Yeah, I, I've changed it. Yeah. But I have already found uh, there is one brand of beer that isn't made with wheat. So I've already found that. So that's great. Great. So this week in medical mysteries. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that they found it rather than yeah. sooner rather than later. I mean, better now than you're like, you know. It's one show I always watch is it's like medical mysteries or something. I don't always watch. I watch on occasion, and people. It's it's essentially it's like these people. Um, you know, they they have these symptoms, these weird symptoms, and then these other weird symptoms. Like, go see the doctor. And the doctors think it's something else, and then they keep getting sicker, and they go see like dozens of doctors, and sometimes it goes on for years, and they're getting more sicker and sicker, and finally someone figures out, oh, you have this weird disease, blah blah blah, and then yeah. it's like they're all fixed. That sounds like house. Yeah, it's kind of like house. My wife can't stand it because she's like, like it's disgusting. <laughs> it's like it's a problem solving thing. It's the kind of thing like I watch it like midnight, like she's already asleep and I'm kind of crashing. I just kind of want to zone out a little bit and I watch it. So, yeah, you're just like this is like an episode of Medical Mystery. Did you did you go see numerous doctors or anything, or was it just like yeah, we go to one? The, doc- your it, the, the idea for it never came from the doctor. I mean, the doctors never suggested it over the years. Um, basically. Some just someone suggested, have you, you know, have you, have you tried this? They they knew something about it, so then I went in and asked to be tested for it, and then came back positive. Right, right, right. 
Weird. Well, good. Anyway, enough well, good. about that. So then you'll, you'll, be around to, you'll be around to do the show for a while. Okay, so, you know, the whole, the whole thing about the not invented here syndrome, yes. which is kind of interesting because you, you, I think I was reading an article on, it was the guy from GitHub, and he was talking about how they made GitHub really fast, and he, he had written some component or some, and he said, you know, before you freak out on the not invented here syndrome, this is why I built it. You know, well, he had to do this complete sort of, um, I, I, I don't know, like, a, a, you know, forgive me, a, forgive me that I did this. Like, yeah. I, not, you know, that I wrote my own code because everybody is so on the web, or, you know, it seems they're so like, that, that writing your own stuff is such a, an apostasy or something. And I think that's completely wrong. Um, again, I'm going to go against conventional wisdom that you should just reuse stuff that everybody else is using. <laughs> but the first thing I wanted to say about it is this, is that if you look at all the really cool stuff, all the really big breakthroughs, they wrote their own stuff, like Ruby on Rails. Well, guess what? I mean, when he's first starting out this writing this Rails, right? Yeah. And he said, oh, and he probably is telling somebody, oh, you know, so I'm building this base camp, the project management thing, but I don't like rewriting the same code. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build an entire like framework that does all the stuff for you that, you know, does this object relational mapping and kind of stuff. And, and people probably could, there probably been a number of people said, oh, well, why don't you just use, you know, X, Y, and Z? Because there was other stuff that did mapping, you know, there were Java, there were Java, you know, tools or other kinds of tools, right? And, and and they would have looked at him like, well, why are you writing this from scratch, right? Why are you writing your own object relational mapper? Because it wasn't the first one ever built, right? Yeah. But after he succeeded in going and building his own thing from scratch, now he's a genius, right? Or, or the guy, Guido, whatever his name, who wrote Python, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to write my own programming languages because I don't like the other ones that are out here. <laughs> it was like so you're going to write your own programming languages. I don't know languages. if these are good examples. Like, because, Why? Because, Why? because basically, in each of these examples, they've just enabled other people to not write their own. So, in other words, one instance of someone writing their own has propagated millions of instances of other people not writing their own. Yeah, that, that, well, that's, that's, that's true. But somebody ultimately has to break away and say, I'm building something from scratch. I don't, I don't care. I, I don't like the way this other stuff works. And when they succeed really well, then that's the new big deal. But that's not right? why you do it. That's not why you do because you you like there's 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 different reasons why people do different things. The reason the reason why you do it, if I understand correctly, is because basically you have a quick look at other people's stuff and you're very sort of you know um, pig-headed <laughs> about well, no, way, no, about I mean, what you what want. What would you call? What I mean, would you call? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I don't like the way if their stuff doesn't work the way I want it to work, but it's it's then almost I'm like write my own stuff. But it's almost like it requires this mental shift. I think we've had this discussion before. Like, there's a mental shift required to use someone else's code. Like, you you even need to get out of not invented here syndrome before you can even acknowledge that someone else's code is acceptable to use. And I think that I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be I insulting. I use other people's code. I mean, I use other people's libraries, but I use minimal stuff because I find that other people's stuff tends to restrict me too much, and it starts right. boxing me in to do things that I don't that that makes things work in a way or that I don't think they should work, and it starts kind of yeah boxing me in. And um, yeah, I don't yeah I, like I said I don't I don't agree. I mean, I I think that that um, I'm the same I as think that. A lot of times, by the way. I mean, if something, what? if I try someone's library and it doesn't do what I want within about a minute, I throw it away. And I basically, 
I go through, you know, I'll go through 10 libraries and if they, if none of them do what I want within a minute, then I'll just write my own. Yeah. I mean, I give it more than a minute, but I mean, and I'll do the same thing. I'll look like, you know, like I told you, I'm writing my own object relational mapper, right? right? I looked at all of the major ones available for PHP, right? I looked yeah. at them and I don't mean I just looked at them. I mean, I downloaded them and read like, you know, 80 pages of their manual, you know? And it still wasn't going to do things the way I wanted them to work or the way they needed to work for me. And so it's not like I just dismiss it out of hand. A lot of times you can learn by what's already out there and say, okay, that's just some reason. And I got a lot of ideas about how things could work yeah. while looking at the stuff. But in the case of my, you know, my object relational mapper, I'm building things that the way they'll be optimized to work for me. And I won't hit all the headaches and problems because I've read, you know, not only can I see things that weren't going to work for me, the right way, but you know, reading these postmortems of all these people who would use things like Hibernate and Rails and stuff, and they're like, "Yeah, you know what? It was awesome at first, but when I got to this point, and then I was screwed." Well, it's also when <laughs> you when know? you try and but any any software that I've ever used like that has been bloatware because it's trying to do so many things for so many people, and you know that's why I always write my own framework because ultimately my framework is going to be infinitely less have infinitely less code than something like Zend or or Cake or PHP. Because it's just it's just going yeah, to do the little um, parts that I need. Yeah, it was it's funny because I I was just I was reading an article. It was actually re, I was reading about the PHP filtering, no, the filter um, uh, library or extension. You ever use that? No, tell me filtering, about it. Like, you know, it's it's built as part it's as part of the standard PHP distribution. I think it's definitely with extensions, and it's probably the kind of thing that's like available on almost every you know PHP installation or most of them anyway. Yeah. And it's just simple filter and allow it's kind of it allows you to sort of make sure that an int is actually an int, and then you basically try and prevent SQL injection attacks and things like that. Okay. And it's just called I think that extension is just called filter. And I was reading a little bit about that. I was you know after we talked I think last week and I told you a little bit about you know the. the oh, and I asked you, are you trapping for SQL injection? Yeah, and so I wanted to, you know, and I've done different things in the past, but I said, all right, I want to do like a real quick, or actually, I want to do a deep look into like what are the what are the best practices in preventing this, because if you're going to be doing a lot of um, code generation, which I, I'm doing with with this stuff, the code I generate, I want to be pristine and completely bulletproof, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you error handling and preventing, you know, mal, you know, SQL injects, all that kind of stuff. It's just got to be awesome. So that's the good thing about uh, code generation is that, you know, you write stuff 10 times better because this stuff is going to be generated an infinite number of times, right? Yeah. All you have to do is write it once. So it's easy. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you're writing like a base library, I guess. But um, anyway, that's how I came across it. And the guy, I can't remember what his name is, uh, uh, Leerdorf or whatever. I think he's a big shot in the whole Rasmus uh, PHP world. Yeah. yeah, he's yeah, the guy who exactly. he's the guy who who basically wrote PHP. He took it from. Right, he's I think the first was, one. The, well, he wasn't. The, there was one guy before him, but he basically then took it on as his as his baby. The guy, the guy who there was another there two guy. guys from Israel, right? He was one of the guys from Israel, right? I'm not sure. One guy wrote it. He was like in grad school somewhere, and then these two guys from Israel called him and says, "Hey, this is pretty cool, but you don't really know what you're doing, do you? I mean, with this, right, we're yeah. looking at your code, and we can help." Out. The guys who started Zend or something. Yeah, so that's the Rasmus Leardorf guy who's basically thought of as the head of PHP. Yeah, well, he basically said the same thing. He, wrote, he was writing about, um, he, 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 his, his article was called the No Framework PHP MVC Framework. Okay. And he does this really sort of simple tutorial on like how Did you see my comment MVC on that thread, on that page? I basically... Oh, really? You actually... 
Yeah, I've got a comment, and it's really it's really embarrassing. I basically said, if you know, if if he worked for me, I'd sack him. Looking at that code. <laughs> yeah, well, the code looks kind of <laughs> anyway. Well, anyway, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's demo code, right? So it's going to yeah. be really small, and you know, I mean, he mixes his PHP and his HTML, and he doesn't really. It's not whatever. But his whole point thing too is saying the same thing. It's like you know, I don't like if you want to use a big framework, go ahead. I don't like to do it. I like to keep things small and tight and specialized, specific to what I'm doing. And I was like, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what yeah. I do. I don't no, want I, this. I, I do I'm think that there's it. a lot of sense in that. Like, in fact, I mean, he would. What, what, what he said at the beginning, he goes, uh, let's see if I have the article. He said something like... Um, I think that approach is just a great approach with every kind of technical architecture. Like, the smaller you keep the units, um, you know, the less the less monolithic they are, um, the, right. more, the more scalable it's going to be, you know? It, like, sharding right. is the same thing, database sharding. It's just basically splitting everything right. up into small components because it's, because something small is much easier to deal with and scale. Yeah, well, that's 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 been my experience in writing code for whatever long twenty years I've been doing it. And um, he, uh, so it's kind of funny when I read that. I'm like, yeah, that's that's all I feel about things. I've, I've looked at Zend and Cake and all this stuff, and I'm like, forget it. I'm not using that crap. And then um, I was listening. It just so happened I was, you know, I like to listen to this podcast sometimes when I'm writing code. Um, and there was I was in some archives of the Hansel Minutes. Have you heard of Hansel Minutes? No, Scott Hanselman. No. He, is, he, just, he just basically interviews people on a show, right. and he was interviewing uh, Jeff Atwood from Stack Overflow. Oh, yeah. And, um, and uh, he's interviewing about you know, optimizing um, and scaling Stack Overflow and what yeah. they've done. And what Jeff had said was that he didn't like using other people's libraries. He liked to keep everything. The, the only thing that they use, they only use like one or two libraries that are not like – their own or are not part of like the Microsoft stack or whatever. One was like something with like some captcha thing. Yeah. And the other, I think might've been some, might've been some open ID authentication, everything else. They had tried other things and then they just write them your own. And, and that, that way, like team things specialized and small and tight and uh, it's easier to debug. It's easier to maintain. It's easier to make it really work great. And I think that's one of the things like, you know, Stack Overflow is just an awesome website and it's just a very small team got this really successful thing going. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Atwood is one of these things who's kind of like, I, I kind of think of him as sort of like a, um, he's like these very, these very politically correct coders, right. you know, meaning that politically correct coders are like, you know, they, they, they don't like non-invented here syndrome and they like to use open source and they like to do all these things that, if the all the things that you would say on the web that would not get people yelling at you, yeah, you know, and so he's I think of him as very politically correct, but you, you know, it's despite that, of course, he he gets a lot of people flaming him on his blog. So I don't think you say anything in the tech space without getting flamed. <laughs> well, I but, mean, like the the know. article he wrote about advertising, I mean, people were incredibly annoyed about. For 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 some reason, people think that that the website should be free and that there shouldn't be any advertising on it and people think that they can use they can use ad blockers and that's perfectly fine but the truth is if you use an ad blocker you're essentially stealing <laughs> you're stealing someone's yes, no, site yeah. i don't know and and that was the yeah. point that that he was that jeff atwood was making on his blog and i completely agree with it but my god the comments the flames he got wow yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. A lot of people live in this sort of idealistic world about how they think the world should be as opposed to how it is. And 
you know, everything should be free and whatever. But, you know, anyway, the, I thought it was just funny because he said the same thing. You know, he built, you know, he, 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 for the most part, they built all their own stuff. I mean, they used a couple of very small specialized libraries, just like I do, right? I mean, like, yeah. you know, um, I, you know I, I'm not going to write a library that converts, you know, PHP into JSON and back and forth. You know, there's, yeah. there's one that does that. There's an extension. You know, it would be stupid. But frameworks, I don't like frameworks. I mean, I'll use a, I'll use the .NET framework for writing Windows apps because I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But you don't need a framework to write freaking PHP code for crying out loud. It's just not that complicated, you know. Especially if you've already done it, or especially if you've already built it, you know, 30 websites. It's like I know how it works. <laughs> you know, I don't need, you know, this big hierarchy just so I can get something working. Yeah. So anyway, wow. I just thought. I just thought it was kind of interesting, the whole not embedded here syndrome. Um, I just people, – people are so afraid to say that they build something. But I think that if you're going to do – a lot of the times you'll see the really awesome things that were done. People said, I'm going to invent my own because I can do a better job. Well, then, I don't like MySQL. SQL, or, 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 I'm not, I don't like uh, you know, MySQL or Postgres, so I'm going to build like Cassandra. They're going to build their own you know, these key value database with all this proliferating. Because everybody could have jumped on and jumped on, and everybody just did like one of them, right? But now there's like 10 of them, you know, of these the key value distributed databases. Yeah. But because of that, there's a whole different lot of ideas, a, whole, a lot of new ideas about what might work. And people can pick and choose what they want because not everybody – because enough people were able to stand up and, and, and it, with the you know, chance that they're going to get ostracized by everyone because, why are you building your own database? It's stupid. You should just reuse you know, the one we built. You know? It's like, well, I don't like the one you built. I'm going to build one better. I mean I, I definitely <laughs> agree know? that – that basically um, building your own is much easier to optimize, and unless you don't know anything about optimization and you don't have any idea, don't have any ideas on how you can optimize something. But yeah, yeah. If you're if you're if you're if you look if if you're building something that doesn't matter or something that's just like like for instance in the .NET stuff that I do, I mean we have to have these uh, grid control. I'm not going to build my own grid control. Why would I do that? There's a perfectly fine grid control that costs like 500 bucks. It's perfect. It's just like yeah. a drop-in component. So I wouldn't build something like that. And um, so I don't mean to say things like that. You know, I buy comp uh, you know, I'll buy components or I wouldn't build something whatever. that wasn't it wasn't very important, basically. That that I didn't see as being, you know, fundamentally part of the product that I was making. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it has to be a really a core a, a core piece, and uh, and that's like the ORM stuff that I'm doing is a really core piece. It'll live or die. The, the 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 value of the product, success of the product, will die. Will it will live or die, to a certain degree, by the the flexibility and robustness and scalability of this arm. All right. Well, I think we've I think we've uh, certainly done long enough for our weekly episode, haven't we? Yep. It's been good. Awesome. That's wrap. We're out.